Well, good morning. Welcome. Glad to be here with you this morning. If you don't know who I am, my name's Tim. Karen and I have been partners here for about seven years or so. Um, and this, this morning kind of reminds me of my, my football career in high school. The, uh, the only time I saw playtime was when the starters were all out of town. <laughs> well, the starters are out of town, and so you got me. Um, but I'm looking forward to our time in the Word together. But before we go there, I'd like to ask you a favor. I'd like you to join with me in prayer and ask that God would give us his spirit and open our heights that we might see him. Pray with me, please. God of heaven, we need you. We are a people who have been deceived by the lie of the serpent. And we need your spirit to open our eyes to the truth of who you are and what you are and who we are, that we might find life in you and in you alone. So God of heaven, we ask in the name of Jesus that you might pour fresh on us your spirit, open the eyes of our heart, that we might see you and that we might love you and find life in you as you have called us to do. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing through our study of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 11, verse 9, through chapter 12, verse 8. It's the passage about getting old. It's hard to not take personal when Jamie asked me to preach on the passage about getting old, but, but this, this ends up starting quite cheery, but ending quite depressing. Uh, but there is a purpose to it all. And so I invite you, if you have your scriptures, to please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And we'll start with verse 9. That verse starts this way. Be happy. This is the command of God for you. Be happy. I mean, this is a good start. But it's going to get a lot grimmer. Be happy, young man, while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. I mean, if you look at this verse, it starts out almost like a high school graduation commencement speech. Class of 2020, follow your dreams. Whatever your eyes see, whatever your vision is, go for it. And, and the, the, the teacher, God is not opposed to that. That's not mere hype. God has given each of us visions and passions. He has placed those in our hearts, and he has called us to follow those. The writer says to the youth, listen, you've got vision, you've got passion. Follow those things. But understand this. You will be called to judgment before God for all you do. What he is saying, I think, is this. Follow your passion, follow your vision, but don't make them ultimate. Don't look to your passions and your visions to give you life. As youths, if you can remember back then, one of the things we were passionate about was having fun. Youth have a voracious appetite for fun. And youth have this tendency to make fun ultimate. That is, they lift up fun and they say, fun is what gives my life meaning. Fun is what makes me happy. But as soon as we lift up anything but God and make something else ultimate, we are immediately ruled by the fear of losing that thing. So when youth make fun the ultimate thing, they are immediately placing themselves under the rule of FOMO, fear of missing out. 
And FOMO drives youths to do some very stupid and even sinful things. Two guys standing on a bridge, one guy says to the other, hey, Joe, man, what do you, what do you say we jump off this 50-foot bridge into this freezing cold water below? And Joe says, ah, boy, I don't know, Max. Uh, doesn't sound like much fun to me. It kind of sounds dangerous. Max goes, oh, come on, Joe. I mean, Fred and Sam and I, we're all going to do it. It's going to be great fun. I mean, you're going to miss out. Oh, okay. And off they go. The fear of missing out drives drives us, the fear of missing out on some pleasure drives us to do foolish and sinful things. And the writer, the teacher, of, to, wants us to understand that these foolish things cannot become ultimate. If we make pleasure ultimate, we will be ruled by the fear of missing out, and that fear will drive us to do foolish things. Un unfortunately, this folly is not limited to youth. We live in a culture that has exalted pleasure as the source of life. We worship at the altar of the God of pleasure. And because of that, we are a people who are ruled by FOMO, ruled by the fear of missing out. We go on expensive vacations we can't afford and strap ourselves with debt because we don't want to miss out. What is it that entices us into that office romance that ends up destroying our families it is the fear of missing out on something that we might need to really find pleasure in life. When we set pleasure as the ultimate, we become ruled by the fear of missing out and we place ourselves under immediate and ultimate judgment. The writer goes on. Before we look at verse 11, though, let me back up a second and review our, the vocabulary here. As you've noticed through our study of Ecclesiastes, the teacher is fond of using a particular word, and that is the word meaningless. He repeats that over and over again. And as Jamie and Eric have pointed out, what the Hebrew below that word, the Hebrew that's interpreted as meaningless, is the, Greek, is the Hebrew word hebel, which means a vapor or a breath. Now, if, you've any spent every, if you have spent any time up north, in the cold winter, you know that when you breathe out, your breath condenses into this vapor, into this mist, and then it's gone. He's saying that's what our life is like. It's like this breath, it's like this vapor. You see it for a second, then it's gone. It has no real substance. When, you, when you're out in the winter cold, you can't breathe out this mist and grab it and make a mist ball and have a mist ball fight. No, there's, there's no substance to that mist. And no sooner do you see it than it's gone. He's saying, that's what life is like. That's the meaninglessness, that it is fleeting, that it is passing. It has no real substance. And what the teacher is going to say to us here is, don't, don't spend your life pursuing things that are just going to evaporate. Don't spend your life chasing these things that are fleeting. Don't look to the thing, don't look to something that will disappear as your source of life or you will be terribly disappointed and you will live your life in fear. Well, with that understanding of meaningless, let's take a look at verse 10. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Now, in our Western way of thinking, typically the way we reason is that we give our reasoning first and then our conclusion. But this is Hebrew poetry, 
And what the writer here does is he gives his conclusion first and then his reasoning. So to help us better understand what he's saying, let me flip it around to more of our Western way of thinking. Youth and vigor are meaningless. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body. Our culture has not only elevated pleasure as the God and the source of life and, and placed ourselves under the rule of FOMO, our culture has elevated youth and vitality as, as this glorious thing that we're supposed to hold on, this youth and vitality and strength that gives us life, it is what makes us happy. In fact, there's a saying in our culture that if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Wow, that's a lot of pressure to be healthy, huh? We have elevated health and vitality as this source of happiness. And because of that, we as a culture are not only ruled by FOMO, I'm gonna push it here, we are ruled by FOGO, the fear of getting old. And this, this and, and the, writer, the writer says here, you know, you're getting all worked up about some wrinkles and about some gray hair. He's like, chill out, man. This stuff is fleeting. It, it, this youth has no real value. It has no real substance. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Don't hitch your wagon to being young or you will be ultimately grossly disappointed. Gravity wins. Death wins. The other day I saw a picture of this old flabby man at the beach. Turns out that old flabby man was Arnold Schwarzenegger. In the battle between Mr. Olympia and gravity, gravity has won. And one day even Arnold won't be able to say, I'll be back. Because Arnold will be gone forever. Don't attach your hope to youth and vitality. It is fleeting, it is meaningless, it is a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow. If you are to find real happiness, it must be anchored in something that is not transient, in something or someone that is eternal. And what is it that we are to attach our hopes to? Who is it that is eternal? The, the writer reminds us here in chapter 12, verse 1, he says this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer stirred, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Are you happy yet? The writer here wants to show us that all of life is fleeting. You see, as, as youth, we think that what's gonna really give us life is fun 
And so we're ruled by the fear of missing out. But as we mature and as we grow older, we start to develop skills and, and abilities and we begin to, to, to not have the same appetite for fun, but we have a growing appetite for significance. And we begin to, to say, you know, what I really need to make me happy as a more mature person is I need significance. That's what I need. And the writer here says, listen, all those skills, all those talents that you develop will be one day stripped from you. And if you place your significance in that, if that is your hope for life, it will be taken away. It is a fleeting vapor. You know, as a young boy, I remember watching the Winter Olympics. And they did this piece on this downhill skier, this German guy, who was outstanding. And they did it, you know, a background piece on him. And they showed how his, his coach was his father. And man, his coach was relentless. His father drove him, you gotta win, you gotta win. And they trained all day long, every day. They were relentless. And he was just driven to win, driven to win. And then finally came his race. It was a downhill slalom. And he did great. He did great. And he won the silver medal. And then they came to interview him. And I will never forget that interview. He was angry. And he was bitter. And he was making excuses. And he was complaining about the fact that he only got a silver medal. And I remember thinking, how pitiful. How absolutely pitiful. Here he is competing for his country at the highest echelon of athletic comp competition. He gets the excitement of being in the Olympics. He wins a silver medal for his country. And here he is fussing and complaining that he didn't win the top award. And I remember looking at him with disdain and contempt. Well, Karen and I went to a small college out in western Pennsylvania. And this college had the tradition that they did not pre-announce who the valedictorian was and who the salutatorian would be. They waited till the day of graduation, and the way you found out was you opened the bulletin, and there it was. So we all shuffle into the graduation ceremony, and we're you know, eager to find out who won kind of thing, and so we open the bulletin, and I look at it, and I'm quite disappointed with, with actually with what it said. Well, after, after the graduation, we go outside, you know, I go outside and I meet with my family, Karen's there, Karen's parents are there, my folks are there, and my oldest brother, who's actually 19 years older than me, he's number one and I'm number nine, so there's a few siblings between he and I. But my oldest brother made the effort to come to my graduation, which I really appreciated, and I really respected my oldest brother. She's like the smartest person I knew. And he reaches out his hand and he says to me, Tim, congratulations on your graduation and congratulations on being salutatorian. And I looked at him, and I was so overcome with disappointment that I began to cry. Now understand, I enjoy learning. And there was a part of me that wanted to do my best for the glory of God. But at that moment, the tears that were rolling down my face were a profound testimony that what my life was centered around was not doing my best for the glory of God, but being my best, being the best for the glory of Tim. I had hooked my life to significance, to proving my significance by what I did. 
and I was ruled by fear. Not FOMO, the fear of missing out. Not FOGO, the fear of getting old. And I'm really gonna push it here. But FUI, <laughs> the fear of insignificance. You know, I, I'm, I'm older now. I'm no longer, sadly in some ways, that 24-year-old insecure college student. In fact, now Karen and I are at a place in our lives where the kids are out of the house and we have a bit more time on our hands. And at a time in my life when I thought I would be backing away from work, I find myself working harder than ever. And, and, I, and I look at that and I wonder, say, well, you know, I do enjoy my work, that's part of the reason. And we do need to sack away some money for the day that's coming when I won't be able to work. But when I look at the compulsive nature of my work habits, there's got to be more than that. And as I peel things back, I dig down to that insecure 24-year-old college student who is ruled by the fear of insignificance. And part of my reason for working so hard is because I'm good at what I do, and by working hard and by accomplishing a lot, I can prove my value and my significance. And those fears that rule us, those fears that are a result of us thinking that something other than God can bring us happiness, those fears destroy our happiness, destroy our joy, and bring only judgment. How is it that we can be set free from these fears. You know, I've had a bit of self-confession here to the fact of how I'm ruled by my insecurities. But I find a little comfort in the fact that the teacher tells me that all of us struggle with this. Listen to his words in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. He says, And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. All labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. So much of what we do is not, this not driven by a concern to, to, to do our best for the glory of God, but to prove that we're better than somebody else, to satiate our, our hunger for significance. It is driven by the fear of insignificance, and it imprisons us and it robs us of the very happiness that it promises. So how is it that we can be set free from placing our hopes in these things that are vapors, saying, this vapor is gonna make me happy, where'd it go? This vapor is gonna make me happy, this vapor's. How is it that we get set free from, from finding, looking to pleasure for life, looking to, to strength and vitality for life, looking to our, our efforts to prove our significance and to give us life. How are we to be set free from these vanities that rule us? The writer tells us how. He says this in verse one. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. When the teacher tells us to remember our creator, he's not simply saying remember that you have a creator but remember who your creator is. Remember that we have ever done is fear. And underneath every sin producing fear is the fact that we have fallen prey to the primal lie of the, ser the serpent. 
Under every sin, if you burrow down, under every sin is fear, and under every sin-producing fear is the fact that we have believed the primal lie of the serpent. You remember the story of the Garden of Eden. God makes for Adam and Eve this idyllic garden, paradise, and he places them in it. And they can eat from any tree in the garden. There's all sorts of these extravagant fruit trees all over the place. They can eat from any one of the trees except for one tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that they can't eat. And so things are going well in paradise until the serpent shows up. And the serpent has a singular objective, and that is to get Eve to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt that his provision is sufficient, to doubt that God really wants her to be happy. And so the serpent comes to Eve and says, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Right away, he's slandering the character of God, making him out to be this stingy God who won't let them eat from any tree. And he says, no, 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 you got that wrong. He said we can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we eat from that, he says we will surely die. And Satan says, no, Eve, that's where you're wrong. You won't surely die. The reason God does not want you to eat from that tree is because he's afraid that if you eat from that tree, you'll become like him. You see, God's holding out on you, Eve. God doesn't really want what's best for you. God's law is there to keep you back from being really happy. And if you really are going to be happy, you need to transgress God's law. You need to take this into your own hands. And you need to look outside of God for happiness. And so Eve looks at the fruit, and she sees that it's beautiful. It's going to satisfy her, her appetite, her hunger for beauty. She sees that it's good for food. It's going to satisfy her hunger, her appetite for the pleasure of eating something good. It's going to make her appetite happy. It's going to make her eyes happy. And then she sees that it's useful for gaining knowledge. It's going to make her like God. It's going to make her significant. And she's going to be happy. And so she believes that God is holding back from her what would truly make her happy. And so she takes the fruit and she eats it and she's happy from, from then on. No. The fall happens. Sin and death enter the world. Because she failed to believe that her creator was good, that her creator had her best interest in mind. Nothing has changed. Every sin in our lives that we have ever engaged in is rooted in a failure to believe that God is good and that God has our best interest in mind. It is a saying, I'm afraid that unless I transgress the law of God, I will not be happy. Therefore, I will transgress the law of God because God is holding me back from true happiness. At the root of every sin, is the belief that God is not good and God is not for us. The psalmist says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. The psalmist's heart has been set free from fear. How? Because the psalmist has seen the goodness and the grace of his God. You know, so many times when we are faced with our sin, we respond by making a promise to God. 
You know, God, oh, I know, I know that I know that was a sin. Please forgive me. But, 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 uh, God, I promise, I'll, I'll, I'll never do that again. I promise. And then that's usually followed shortly by, God, I promise again that I'll never do that again. And then followed by. God, I really promise that I'll never do that again. God, I really, really promise this time. This time I'll really, I, I will do God, I really, how many promises to God do we have to make before we realize that our promises to God are powerless to deliver us from sin because they don't, they don't touch at the root of our sin. It is not, excuse me. It is not our promises to God that have the power to deliver us from sin. What has the power to deliver us from sin is God's promises to us. Because it is in the promises of God to us that we see the goodness of God, that we see the mercy of God, that we see that in Christ Jesus, God is for us. And so if we are struggling with sin, don't make a promise to God. It won't touch it. Won't touch it. Start to begin to repent and immerse yourself in the promises of God. Remind your heart that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how much will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God wants your best. He has your best in mind. And the way we remember that is by immersing ourselves in the promises, remembering our creator who loves us and gave himself for us. You know, it's interesting. The scripture in the New Testament says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And every time the spirit of God falls on his people in the New Testament, the same thing always happens. Every time the spirit of the Lord falls on, the people, on his people, on the church in the New Testament, the result is that they end up declaring the mighty deeds of God. Why is that? It is because it is the role of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to the beauty of who God is. And when the Spirit of God comes and opens the hearts of his people to see the glory of God, they explode in compulsive praise. And they see the goodness of who their God is, that in Christ Jesus he is for them, and they are set free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, we see God for who he is. Remember your creator. There is nothing that will set you free from sin apart from a vision of the goodness and the grace of God that is yours in Jesus apart from a spirit-empowered vision of the goodness and the grace of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember your creator. That not only means remember that God is great and God is good, but remember he is creator and you are creature. And the writer does a pretty good job of driving home our creatureliness in this passage. Let me run through these verses really quickly. Verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. As old age comes upon us, everything grows dim and life tends to flatten out. And then he says, when the keepers of the house tremble, this is a poetic reference to the keepers of the house. 
our arms and our hands. As we grow old, what happens? Our strength fades and our arms and our hands begin to shake. He says, and the strong men stoop, that strong men stoop, say that five times fast. And the strong men stoop, what he's talking about is, is what happens to the strong men, to our legs and our back. What, once we stood strong, now what happens, our legs and our back stoop and we're hunched over in old age. And he goes on in this wonderful description. When the grinders cease because they are few, we lose our teeth and we can't chew our food anymore. End up gumming it. And those looking through the windows grow dim. We get cataracts and we can't see well. Everything gets blurry and dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, as old age comes upon us and as death approaches, we lose our appetites. And the door to the streets, we don't open and the grinders don't do anything because we're not eating. Our appetite has faded. When men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, as old age comes on, our sleep habits get messed up and we wake up with the birds. The only problem is we're too deaf to hear them. He goes on. When men are afraid of heights and dangers in the streets, as we grow old, our bones become frail and brittle. And even a flight of stairs scares us because we know that one fall might be our end. He says, when the almond tree blossoms, now, when an almond tree blossoms, it has his white flower all over it. I'm tempted to embarrass an almond tree in the back, but, but as, we, as we grow old, our, olive, our almond tree will start to blossom. If we, if we keep our hair long enough and we don't dye it, we will our hair will turn white. That's what he's referring to here. The almond tree blossoms. We get white on top like the almond tree. But he goes on. And the grasshopper drags himself along and desire is no longer stirred. You know, the grasshopper is a pretty remarkable little insect. I mean, those guys are about, well, down here we grow them big, but, <laughs> but up north, they're about an inch long and those, those guys can jump like three or four feet. I mean, they got some serious bounce. It's, it's like you going into a football stadium, standing in the end zone and in a single jump, jumping 70 or 80 yards. That's some serious bounce. He's saying, as old age comes in, we lose our bounce. We get hunched over and we do the old man shuffle. Vitality is gone. He says, desire evaporates. All those passions that once drove us, that animated us, that gave us life, it's flat. And we take a rocking chair over anything else, which sounds good to me about now. But he describes the onset of old age and desire is no longer stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the street. If you live long enough, this is what is your certain destiny. You know, if you think about life, it really does form this kind of cruel arc this somewhat cruel trajectory. I mean, you start off as this little guy with no hair and no teeth and a big belly. And you can barely walk and you can't talk, but people think you're the cutest thing in the world, you know? And they, they don't care you can't talk. They'll get down and they'll make all these silly little noises. And, and all you have to do to absolutely thrill them is smile. 
Oh, you smiled, you smiled. They're all excited. And even the fact that you poop your pants doesn't seem to bother them. And if, if you smell clean, they'll just, oh, I love the smell of baby. It's just the smell of life. Well, then you grow older and you, 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 you get strong and you develop skills, you acquire knowledge and you, you become accomplished and you do wonderful things. And then old age comes and death creeps in. And it strips you of all that. And you end up this old man with no teeth and no hair and a belly. You can barely walk. You have trouble talking. And, but people no longer think you're cute. In fact, they look at you with pity and with sadness. And then you die. Let me close in prayer. <laughs> See that? I can't even take, take depressing for, for five seconds before i got to break it. The writer wants us to see the absolute futility of life. The meaningless, the fact that life is a vapor. That all these things that we anchor our hope to will be gone. Unless we anchor our hope to something and someone that is eternal. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 6. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Now, most commentators think that the silver cord is referring to our spinal cord, that the golden bowl is referring to our skull, which contains the brain, that, that, the, that the jar to scoop water from the spring and the pulley that's used to pull water up from the well refer to our circulatory system. These are all, this, is, this is poetry, okay? These are all poetic references to these things. And what the writer is saying is he's saying, remember God before your brain fails and your body fails and your heart fails. Remember your creator. You may not be young, but there is still time if you have breath in your lungs, if your heart is beating, to remember your creator and make him the source of your life. Exalt him in your life, for that is the only thing that will ultimately last. That is the only thing that is not vanity, vanity, vanity. Our destiny, our physical destiny, the writer tells us, is to become forgotten dust. One day soon, you will be forgotten dust. And he wants that to sober us. And all these van, vain things that we're pursuing to sober us, it's like, it's like he starts out, listen, it's not wrong to pursue these things, but do not make them ultimate, for they will steal your joy. More than that, they will declare, when you make something ultimate above God, we are declaring that God is not sufficient that God does not have our best interest in mind. The God, the infinite God who condescended to make us his, we slander when we pursue other gods above him. Foolish and fleeting gods. When God is our hope, when he is the one 
our, our hearts are set on, when our hope is in him and in his salvation, we are set free from the fears that rule us. We are set free from the fear of growing old. I remember hearing an interview with Billy Graham when he was first diagnosed having Parkinson's disease and they thought his death was somewhat imminent. And the interviewer said, Billy, are you afraid of death? And he said, I can't wait to be with Jesus. I can't wait to be with Jesus. Death for the believer is not a specter, it is an anticipation of being united with our God and our King. So the writer says, remember your creator. Now we can hear all these words and then go home and nothing will be different. We'll still be enslaved to our compulsive lusts because of the fear of missing out. We'll be, still be enslaved to our compulsive disciplines because the fear of being insignificant. How is it that we can be set free from this fear of missing out that drives us in our food addiction, that drives us into our alcohol addiction, that drives us in our sex addiction, that drives us in our shopping addiction? All these, these appetites that we think we need to make us happy, but they hold us captive and they destroy our life. What about being delivered? How can we be delivered by our compulsive disciplines? Working because we have to prove our significance. Working out because we have to prove our significance by being fit having to prove our significance by having the nicest truck or the nicest shoes, or being the best mom, compulsive need to be the best mom and to have the best kids. It is driven not by the glory of God, but by the fear of insignificance. How is it that we can be set free from this fear in a real, tangible way? You know, if you look at the history of Christianity, through the centuries, you'll find that when Christianity breaks out in, an er in, in some area, it starts with this fervent desire to worship and exalt God above all as the great and glorious God. But over time, it degenerates into a man-centered religion. The early 17th century was, was a time such as that where Christianity become in the, in the Western world had become very man-centered. In fact, their man-centeredness was reflected in their cosmology. They believed that at the center of the that the earth, the residence of man, was at the center of the universe. And they believed that, they said, because of a couple Bible verses that they badly misinterpreted. But the main reason they held to it so vehemently was because it made them feel significant. I mean, don't we all want to be the center of the universe? They wanted to be literally the center of the universe. But this, in, in 1609, this Italian polymath named Galileo Galilei developed this telescope that was so powerful that he could see Jupiter, but not only Jupiter, but the moons orbiting around Jupiter. And he saw this big planet with these smaller planets orbiting around it. And he said, well, the sun's big and the earth is small, so it makes sense that the earth rotates around the sun. Well, the church was so opposed to this that, that they actually imprisoned Galileo for heresy. Well, celestial science and our telescopes have improved greatly since that time, 
And now we know that the Earth is not the center of the solar system. It's not the center of the universe. In fact, we know more than that. Based on the most current science, we see that the, that the visible universe is 93 billion light years across. So if you're a little photon, which is quite small, traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 93 billion years traveling at the speed of light, which technically is very, very fast, and to, to get to the other side of the, the universe. And that's only the visible universe. Who knows how much bigger it is than that? In what was called the Copernican Revolution, man surrendered his place at the center of the universe. But what he got in exchange for that was a vision of the splendor and the greatness and the infinite glory of his creator. I would say to you today that what you and I need in our own lives is a Copernican revolution where we exchange our own personal greatness, us being at the center of the universe, where we humble ourselves before God and we receive from the Holy Spirit a vision of the grandeur and the greatness and the splendor and the majesty of our God in such a way that our hearts are set free from the trivial trappings of this world, free to live for the glory of our creator and our soon coming king. Let me close with a, hopefully a quick uh, observation from biology. You know, as we look at, at, at the world around us, it seems like death is inevitable. It seems like aging is inevitable. But as biologists look at the human life, they find out that, that death and aging are not biologically inevitable. They appear to be, in fact, a biological imposition. You see, what happens that one of the major causes of aging is what's called senescence, and that is when our cells get to a place where they can no longer divide. And that's why our skin uses, loses that youthful look and starts to get saggier and saggier and saggier, why we get wrinkles, because those cells are not being replaced with new cells. So, all right, humor me for just a second. I'm kind of a science guy, so just, just humor me. Um, the, the reason senescence happens is because at the end of our chromosomes are these protein chains called telomeres, and they're kind of like the wrap on the end of your shoelaces. They keep the chromosomes from, from unraveling and from getting messed up. So there are these protective protein chains on the end, and every time your cell splits, those chromosomes peel apart to form two, and the telomeres are, some of the telomeres are broken off during that process. And so what happens is the telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until they're at a place where the cells can no longer replicate, and that's called senescence. But it's interesting to note that in preborn babies, the cells in preborn babies have in them an enzyme called telomerase. And what telomerase does is when the cell divides and the telomeres shorten, telomerase comes along and sticks some more telomeres on the end. So that in biological terms, those cells are, and this is the biological word for it, immortal. They can replicate forever and never get old. But at some point in time, 
for some unknown reason, the cells in that baby stop producing telomerase and the countdown toward death begins. But it doesn't have to. If those cells continue to produce telomerase, we'd never wrinkle. Sounds kind of nice, huh? Not only that, but current stem cell research has shown that the body has the ability to regenerate limbs and organs, but for some reason that's been turned off. And, and the goal of stem cell research is to somehow coax the body into doing what it already knows how to do, but refuses to do. Okay, little known fact. If you were to take a child, 10 or younger, and chop off the top of his finger above the first joint and let that scab over, it would form what's called a blastema, a collection of stem cells, undifferentiated cells. And the cells in the place where skin belonged would turn into skin. And the cells in the place where bone was supposed to be would somehow, ultimately, mysteriously, know to turn into bone. And the cells where ligaments should be know to turn into ligaments. And that fingertip would grow back perfectly. It would regenerate perfectly. But somehow this has been, yeah, okay, so there's skeptics out there. Listen, if you, have a, if you doubt me and you have a young child, <laughs> here's what you need to do. Go on your computer and Google it. That will, that will satisfy your skepticism and it will keep a social worker from showing up on your front porch. But the point is, is that our bodies have this ability to regenerate that has been turned off, an ability to be immortal that's been turned off. Why is death this imposition? What happened that caused death to be this biological imposition? Genesis 3 happened. Sin came in. If you eat the fruit, you will surely die. And the countdown began. Physical death for you and I, aging for you and I, is inevitable. But sin not only produces a physical aging, sin in our life produces a spiritual aging where we lose our zest, our zeal, and our vitality. Think about when you were first came to Christ and the zeal and the fervor you had as a new believer. Think about the bounce in your step, about when you thought about the fact that your sins had been taken away, the righteousness of God had been given to you. You were, were, were an adopted child of God, the bridegroom of Christ, and you're, there was a joy. What happened? G.K. Chesterton says, we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Our souls have become worn out and leathery by sin. Physical death is a certainty for us. But hear the words of Isaiah. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. 
They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Our souls have become tired and old because we have taken our hope off the creator God who loves us and ransomed us and placed our hopes on the fleeting things of this world and we've been ruled by fear and we have degraded into cynicism. And the Lord says, I want to renew you. I want to restore you in your soul. I want you to once again see my greatness and my goodness towards you. I want the gospel to become more than the words of Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, wah, wah. I want it to become vital to your soul. And so this morning we are, have set before us the elements to remind us that our creator is for us. The infinite God has condescended and taken on human form to take our sin on himself, to provide for us forgiveness. He has taken on human form to obey the law of God on our behalf that we might receive the blessings of his obedience, the favor of God. If you need proof that God is for you, here it is. And so as we prepare our hearts to take the table, to participate in the Lord's Supper, I invite you to take a few minutes to reflect and to see where your hope has been hitched to what is fleeting in vain and to pray that God might open your heart to see the beauty of who he is, that your heart might once again find its life in Christ Jesus. In a moment, I'll come back up and lead us in the Lord's table. Let me pray. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart. We have no greater need than to see you for who you are in your glory and your splendor, to be humbled before you and to find life in worshiping you and exalting our glorious God and Savior and soon coming King. Holy Spirit, work in us, we pray. Amen.